Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Now, the people out there in podcast land who have been listening already know the spiel. For those who don't, the United States Secret Service called me the original internet godfather. Why? 39 felonies place on the United States most wanted list, an escape from prison. And I built the first organized cybercrime community. It was called Shadow Crew. It was a precursor to today's Darknet and Darknet markets. It laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels operate today. Those 39 felonies, well, they had to do with refining and implementing modern financial cybercrime as we now know it. Oh yes, I went to prison, deservedly so. But I was able to turn my life around. Through my sister, my wife, Michelle, and the FBI, I was given the opportunity to lead a legal, productive life. Today, I work to protect people and organizations from the type of person I used to be. Anglerfish, we talked to Robert Swenskowski. Robert has over 28 years of public safety experience, from a correctional officer to assistant sheriff to professor of practice at Ithaca College. Robert Swenskowski has an experience, understanding, and insight into criminal justice, which few people have. This is part one of a two-part interview where Robert and I talk about a variety of topics from what causes criminal activity to the violence we see on the street today. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast. It's, uh, it's professor, former law enforcement, criminology. It, you're like the Renaissance man of justice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I don't feel like it sometimes. Yep, I, uh, I spent... 26 years in law enforcement. Technically, I'm still in it. Um, 26 years. So, yep. I, I retired as the undersheriff of Oneida County in New York. So, okay. um, like the cities of Utica, city of, of Rome are, are in uh, Oneida County. Um, I stayed on. My position is assistant sheriff. Um, really, it's just uh, I'm being capitalized on for my institutional knowledge. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't mind. So, really, um, consulting with the sheriff's office, you know, reviewing policies, um, helping prepare their annual report. Some of the things I did as mm -hmm. undersheriff that when the, the person who came in and replaced me, I said, you know, we said we could take this off your plate because it inundates you time-wise, but, you know, um, doesn't really, they're always back burner things. doesn't really sure. demand attention at, at the same time. So, yeah, I, I uh, when I got my interview, when I had my interview for undersheriff, one of the panelists uh, said you're lacking a little bit in your uh, 
your educational background. And I took that very seriously. I had an associate. So what was the educational background at that point? I had, I hated school. I mean, I hated school and everything about it. Uh, I went to college because my grandmother told me I was going to college. No one had okay. gone to college in the family. And she's like, here you go. Go down. You're the East. one. Yeah. <laughs> and I went and I, and I barely went. And uh, so I took that to heart because, you know, there was a moment where I say, well, there goes my candidacy for this job. Um, got the job. And uh, a year and a half later, I, I went back to school. And then when I was I finished my bachelor's, I'm there and I'm like looking at the master's going, oh, it's really only two more years. And I did it. And if I didn't, I wouldn't be in the job I am today. So I'm teaching at uh, Utica College. Um, it's a, it's a, a small to mid-sized college about 10 minutes away from me, which is great okay. too. And, and so what do you teach at, at Utica? So I teach criminal justice. Criminal justice. Yep. And so, what type of students are you having coming in there? What uh, What's their career paths? You know, it's funny. So <clears throat> we have uh, the traditional criminal justice track. We have fraud and financial crime. We have criminal intelligence analysis. Uh -huh. In the justice studies program, unique, a lot of colleges don't have this, our cybersecurity programs in our justice studies program. Nice. So I get... Uh, there's, of course, CRJ 103, it's Introduction to Criminal Justice. All students in those programs have to take it, and the cyber people go like, why? Why? <laughs> um, and I tell them, I said, listen, this isn't going to be a cyber-concentrated course, and I try to make sure I, I use examples in cyber um, <clears throat> to keep their interest. This is you're going to need to know uh, laws about privacy rights about privacy and more importantly identify these things to protect yourself sure i have a colleague or a boss that says here i need you to look at this or do this you need to know oh that that might be illegal right it's right just it's just the awareness of of laws and rights and, and you know information such as that well let me, let me ask you this because today i do a lot of speaking um I, I've got two free groups that I work with. I come to universities and I talk to the students there free. I also work anything to do with law enforcement is free as well. Yep. The reason I do students for free, the, the first, literally the first conference that I spoke at was an academic conference in Las Vegas. Uh, the, the gentleman brought me in. He invited me to come and speak. We've been friends on LinkedIn for a few months. And I was like, absolutely, we'll do that. So I go in and I talk and I'll never forget it. There was this poor kid. There were all these kids there. I say kids. There were these, there was these students there. Oh, yeah, I just, <laughs> <laughs> it's tough to break. Yeah. There were these students there and this one was from Hong Kong and I did not mean to throw him this horrible question, but I did. He gave his presentation about the different types of fraud in Hong Kong. And I just, uh, he accepted questions at the end and I raised my hand and I was like, so what is the number one fraud? that you guys are seeing right now over there. And he didn't know. He couldn't answer the question. And I was like, that seems to be a problem. Well, the more I, the more I paid attention, the more I noticed, and I still notice that today, there's this huge disconnect between what's being taught in the classroom to what's going on in the street, at least with cybersecurity. I'm wondering if this is the same thing with criminal justice. Yeah, you know, sadly, I, I think it's true. Um, Till, so and I became undersheriff in 2011, 2013, I'm back in school. <laughs> I'm looking at all these issues going, 
where the hell is all this going on? <laughs> where the hell is this happening? We, we incarcerate the most people in the world with this, this, the, the policies that honestly, they, they create racial disparities or disproportionate minority contact, you know, and it was kind of disappointing that I'm like, I, you know, coming up on 18 years and there's sure. things that are very significant in our criminal justice system. I had no idea. And I was a correction officer. I was a police officer. I worked in civil law enforcement. So why don't I know these things? And I think it's to your point. We have, and it's funny, the classes at the college we teach are called like policing theory and practice or corrections theory and practice course. Theory and, practice. and that's just it. You hit it. We'll tell you what the theory is. And then we'll tell you how it's really done. There you go. (laughs) And I'm like, that's sad that that's how it is because it's true. You know, it's true. I mean, I was just talking, a buddy of mine, he was my partner for years. He comes over, we have a cigar and we, we talk about incarceration in this country. And I said, you know, 2.2 million people are incarcerated in in the uh, United States. We're the gold medal winner of putting people in jail. And he goes, you know, where'd you get that? What was that? Some, some, I'm like, it's, well, it's called fact. <laughs> like, it's called all fact. This, I go, it's one of the very few things when you pick up different textbooks about incarceration, the graph is like the same in everyone's <laughs> books. Like, you know, about 1960, 70, we went like this and everyone's is the same. But I, you know, what's sad. Here's a guy with 20 something years on the job. He has no idea. He started in corrections as well. And it's nothing against him. But I think to your point, it's, there's a huge disconnect between research and facts surrounding the foundation of our criminal justice system. Um, what happens, phenomenon, criminology, the behavior part of it, and then the actual practice. And I'm gonna tell you what, I give all the credit in the world to the men and women who are in uniform. Yeah. On some of them, they're flying by the cedar pants every single day, right. doing stuff that they're not prepared to deal with, they're not educated to deal with, and I'm not, it's not a slam. When you go to someone who has a mental health crisis and you've got 40 hours of training on mental health awareness, do you think you're prepared? Absolutely not. That's not fair to them. And that's why we see some of the problems. But, yes, excellent observation. I mean, there, there's a disconnect. There, there, yeah. <laughs> so, so said that. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we spoke on the phone before we were recording today. Yeah. And I guess the idea for this show has been, based on my history, I'm I'm 50 now. It was, I became a legal person in my 40s, <laughs> so it, it was after I got out of prison. But not only that, it, it's once I became that legal person, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what got me on that criminal path. You know, a lot of time doing that, and I can look back. It's easy for me to point at the finger at my childhood. Mm-hmm. And say, oh, it's obviously the childhood. It's obviously. But at the same time, you know, the, the interesting thing is that I, I can't do that because my sister, my sister had the exact same upbringing, maybe a little bit worse. And she never did that. She, I mean, she went through a shoplifting phase that I talk about religiously with every presentation that I give. But she she never goes off and breaks the law. She has, uh, you know, we were both abused. We both grew up in a criminal environment. But I go on the track of continuing to commit crime and she doesn't, she goes off to be a, she's a teacher. She's a, uh, she's a good parent. She's a good citizen, a good person overall. I was not like that. So it, this, this show that I'm doing is, a, I guess the, the 
thing is, is I want to try to understand not only for the audience, but for me, you know, what gets someone on that, on that path? It's, it's gotta be more than just childhood. I mean, it's gotta be more than just whatever's going on there. I mean, I don't know. So I wanted to talk to you about that. You know, everyone else I've been talking to is a criminal. You are not. (laughs) Well, well, there's, there's a, there's a a unique story. I think we talked about that first. I'll tell you, it's, it's funny you bring this up. So I'm, I'm working on my PhD right now Mm -hmm. and and you bring up a, a related issue. These are the, these are the books that I'm, I'm reading right now. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. Like, Man, there's got to be an answer for him here now. So, yeah, so I'm sitting at my desk and I'm looking at those books while you're talking, going, well, what a, what a good segue into, uh, into talking about that and what, what does affect the child as, uh, as far as criminality. And, and uh, so I told you, I was arrested at 15 years old. Right. And the, uh, the police officer that arrested me kind of exemplified like what a police officer should be. Um, I wanted to be a cop since I was nine. When I got arrested, I figured, you know, it's all over. Right, right. Um, you know, the guy was firm but fair. Uh, handcuffed me, you know, what are you doing? You can't put yourself in these, these situations. So, so what did you do at 15? I got arrested. So I, it was a misdemeanor offense. <clears throat> I don't reveal to anyone what it is. Okay. On the fact of avoiding any stigmatization so I, leave it to people's, I leave it to people's imagination. Um, something, something very minor, but yeah, it's right. part of my uh, dissertation work that I, I'm hoping they're going to allow me to do is looking at when people are, uh, have allegations lodged against them as arrest. You know, we immediately, and, and a lot of people are lying if they say otherwise, they're immediately guilty. Absolutely. On all arrests is an allegation. That's all Absolutely. And we put their paper or their picture in the paper. We put their name underneath that people know where they live, uh, their, their family, their work, everything socially is impacted by it. And then we have the people that, you know, Oh, um, you, you didn't do what you did. <laughs> Charges are dropped. Right. Um, you know, I mean, it, it was a lie and we've had that happen. So, I mean, I'm a big advocate for the, those things not being released. So to my point, I was fortunate being a juvenile. My case was sealed. Um, I was told I never had to release it. When I did my background check for the sheriff's office, I did release it. Full disclosure, I said, listen, sure. I want to be honest with them. What I did find out later in the law where everyone quotes are like, oh, you never have to release this information. One paragraph now says, if you're ever going to go work for a fire department, a police department, a government, you do have to release it. You better release it. <laughs> I did. Because otherwise they could have said, hey, it's an omission. You didn't get a job. But when I went to the, the police station, there was, uh, I remember the, the, the police officer's name and everything that arrested me, the other person I didn't. I encountered this guy, and he got in my face. He goes, haven't we arrested you before? And I, you, I know you're in trouble, and blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't ever want to be like this guy. I don't want to be like this guy. <laughs> right, right. And, and that was, that I carried that with me, like, forever, you know, whenever I had to, to deal with people. And I, I've had to arrest uh, you know, one guy, he was, uh, committing armed robberies. He was putting his finger in his jacket and doing pickups at gas stations. And if you do that, guess what? The law says that's a gun. Ah, I see. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. So, you know, his confession was simply because, and I learned cigarettes were a, have monetary value in, in the criminal justice world. Yes, they do. I had a pack of cigarettes. I wasn't a smoker and he, all he wanted to do is go outside and smoke. So, Brought him outside, smoked, um, 
And he told me the whole thing, you know, he's living with his wife and his two kids in the car and he's trying to survive. Living in the car. Yeah. Living in the car. You know, that's, it's funny he you said that because for 10 years. <laughs> right. And you know, it, it's, I've talked about that earlier this year, you know, we've, we're going through COVID the economy. It took six weeks. Basically it took six weeks to shut the United States down. <laughs> it's what it took. We've got 40 million Americans out of work and I'm looking to these people because back in, late February, March, I, I, you know, I saw the, the tide that was coming and yep. I was in the kitchen with my wife and two stepsons. And I just told them that I was like, look, I said, we got to lock down. I said, uh, we have to start saving. We've got to be very careful about our expenses and everything else. They're like, what do you think? And I said, well, what I think is that we're in a lot of trouble. And I said, the way this story ends is with Brett Johnson breaking the law again and going back to prison. And they looked at me and they said, you think you, you, you really think that? And I said, look, I said, this is, and I told them this is a perfect storm, perfect storm. Um, you know, it's, you got all these people out of work, me included, and the pressure to provide for family, to pay oh. those bills, everything else. And, you know, it's a good thing to have the wherewithal to know that because there's a lot of people that they're not cognizant or they don't want to be. There's this deflection of like, okay, it's everything else. Right. Influencing factors. Absolutely. You know, that's where we go. Like you look at classical criminology, which we have a, a lot of our laws based on, which just said, sorry, rational choice. doesn't matter what's going on in your life. <laughs> you just decided to, well, the sociological, you know, the influences outside, you know, whether it's poverty, whether it's, you know, economics, whether it's family pressure, whether it's social goals that can't be attained. Those are significant. Sure. Those, those are where people say, you know, when, when you're going to school, and the people around you are wearing $100 Nikes and, and you're wearing a pair of, you know, $15, whatever brand from Walmart. At one point you go, wait a minute, <laughs> yeah. got some equity here. And if I can't do it by socially acceptable means, well, then I'm just going to be creative. That's right. It, well, That's right. And, and, well, I always, it baffled me. People in our industry, when someone got arrested or caught committing crime, they're like, that dirt bag, that idiot. I'm like, do you? Like, look at what criminals do. I'm like, they're good at what they do. Okay. So, if you want to label them criminals, that great, but don't say dirtbag and idiot because look at what some. There's a skill level there, there's a skill set. You know, I met a guy, he was with three other people, and they were boosters. So, you're, I'm right behind you. I'm, I'm, I'm on the cusp of 50 myself. And so, we remember when Disney would release the VHS tapes. Right, right. Stores, and there'd be these big displays of them. They'd walk those out of the store. <laughs> the whole display. They were making, oh, the whole display, no problem. <laughs> they were going in suit and tie. They were distracting clerks. They had the whole thing down. The guys telling me about it. And they were making ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a month. Mm. Each, the three of them. They had a fence who was set up. A big, there was a big bust on it. And it was quiet because, well, what they find out, well, you knew all the bars that if you wanted to get Nintendo games for your kids or Timberland boots or stuff like that. Well, guess who was buying that stuff? Yeah. Was it just criminal? <laughs> no, it's not. There were cops and doctors and lawyers and judges that would. So it was, the bust was quiet, you know, but, but these guys get away. Well, one thing the, the, the guy told me is he's, they hooked up with some girls who were into drugs. He says, boy, they got into crack and heroin. He goes, Rob, I couldn't steal a toothbrush. I couldn't steal a razor blade at one point. You're walking around, you're nervous. Right. You know, right. These are guys that were great at what they did. And people go, it sounds like you're bragging about, well, I, I, I am. If someone's good at something or good at something, even if it's a bad thing, 
I can still be impressed with their skill set and their their strategy, their creativity, because they were good at it. I mean, you know, I, cannot I appreciate get. you saying that. I do because you know I look back. I don't I don't brag about what I do, but I look at some of these guys today that are pulling off anything from credit card fraud to refunding to stealing cryptocurrency to some of the physical crimes that are going on as well. And, you, and I'm looking, I'm like, it's a lot of ingenuity there. That's, yeah. that's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it really it, is. Let, let's be honest, you know, and, and if, if I'm, you know, a, a, a law enforcement officer and someone is on the opposite side of that spectrum pendulum, I mean, that's, if that's your adversary, then you should know your adversary. You I agree. And I tell you what, there's a lot of people I do have respect for. So I don't know. I, I always thought, saw things different in the criminal justice system. I always looked at it, no matter where the person was, I'm still dealing with a, a human being. Right. You know, um, just to, just to segue for a second, you, I was going to tell you, you mentioned uh, cigarettes have monetary value in prison. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I got to, done for cigarettes. It was oh all, man. I remember when I got to federal prison, I was in the first prison I was at, the first federal prison was Ashland, Kentucky. And there was a guard there who got indicted for bringing in contraband, cigarettes. And a carton of cigarettes was $1,000. Each cigarette, $7 a piece is what they sell those things for. And I'm sitting there going, okay, that's a lot of money. And they're like, yeah. And then the thing is, is that in federal, you don't have a lot of marijuana. You don't have a lot of the, the excess drugs unless you get the higher level securities. In low and medium, it's tobacco because you can get a load of that in. And it's, it's, it's very little charges, everything else, except for the guards who bring it in. But um, I just wanted to, to mention that. Yeah, no, no. And it's interesting because I wasn't sure on the federal level. But it's funny, on the county level, and I worked at, at a county jail, um, it, we went to no smoking and banned everything. My son's in the state correction system uh, as, as a correction officer, and they still smoke. And I was right. very surprised to, that, that, that they're in there. But, yeah, I learned the same thing. That's actually where I learned it was in the jail. Um, if I wanted something done, again, nothing <laughs> that was done. If I wanted something done. You know, I'm, working in, I'm working in the juvenile, uh, the, uh, juvenile unit, and, like, you know, the inmates painted and stuff like that. And they're like, yeah, we don't want to pay. I'm like. Here's a price right. you want to paint. Oh yeah. Well, I'll paint <laughs> and that's how it was. So yeah, you know, that's, that's what it was. It was the path of least resistance. Sometimes, you know, we understand yeah. reward. So, and that right. was, so that, that was, that was why I had, and like I said, I never smoked. And I think God, for the majority of my career, I always, I always had a pack of cigarettes available. There you go. There you go. So you got, um, you're working on the juvenile question for, for your PhD. That's uh, one of the courses I'm doing. So it's okay. uh, advanced juvenile justice policy. Um, so it's only about, I'm, I'm about five courses in. I think I have nine more to go till I work on my dissertation. So, okay. So, so that's, and I, I, hell, who knows how this conversation is going to go? I didn't, <laughs> but it was, I guess it was two and a half years ago. I had originally started talking, you know, I, my presentations have this degree of humor with it uh, and just a mixture of, of emotions. And the reason it, it's humor is because it's, you either laugh or cry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're right. You're right. And, and, you know, I started talking about, because it's very easy to talk about beginning my life of crime as a shoplifter, because that's, that's a very funny story, but it hits hard at the same time for those parents out there that understand that, hey, you've got a parent that actually incorporates that crime into raising the children. Yeah. 
when I was, I guess I was, you know, we, me and my sister were abused. We were, it was, uh, there was a physical element, but most of it was the mental and the emotional. I had a mother that, uh, hell, she just called me two days ago and I, I've not spoken to her for, for months because she won't, uh, wow. she won't apologize for the, for the abuse. And she certainly won't discuss it. She, uh, she actually calls the other day and starts leaving these voice messages, screaming and yelling and saying that she was the victim, not me and my sister. <laughs> and, uh, um, I guess I was, you know, we grew up in a, in an, in, in an environment where my mother literally was trying to kill my father. She'd bring men home in front of him. She would, uh, she'd look at me and my sister and she would tell us that, um, you know, she gave up her life for us, that, uh, she was going to leave and never come back that we'd find her dead in a ditch somewhere, you know, constantly this, uh, she'd leave us for days at a time. Um, when I was, um, I guess I was nine, eight or nine. I started, I would find, I would catch mom and dad gone. And it was, it was about two years ago when I actually started talking about this, yeah. I'd catch mom and dad gone about when I was eight or nine and uh, I would urinate in the floor, just, you know, yeah. and, and never talk. I was so embarrassed uh, that, that it took me until I was, I'm 50 now. It took me until I was 47, 48 to talk about that. Yeah. And um, I remember the first, uh, it was either the first or second time I talked about that in a presentation. I had a woman come up to me afterwards and she told me, she was like, you know, I'm, I deal with, uh, with abused children and it's common because that's that's the only control mechanism a child has at that point yeah. so I, I even talked to to my sister about it my sister tells me you know i i was a bedwetter at one point she she did the same thing and uh so that was when i was eight or nine and you mentioned you got in trouble when you were 15 when i was 15 i assaulted a woman in an elevator i um to this day, I mean, it, I mean, it, you you look at it. I mean, everyone looks at it, and, and that that knows the circumstances. They're like, well, she looked just like your mom, and she did. Um, I don't think that's that's. Uh, you mentioned rational choice of choosing to do it, and I I keep looking back at that, Robert, and I'm like, yeah, I, that I chose to do that. I did, but at the same time, there's a part of me that understands that it was. Um, that it was a child that was lashing out that didn't have any, um, didn't have the tools to cope with everything that was going on. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing this podcast now and I'm talking to all these people that, uh, that have committed crime. I spoke to a, a sniper scout that had a rough childhood, needless to say. And, um, he becomes a, uh, he becomes a, an army ranger, a paratrooper. He breaks his back uh, the first year and a half in the army, recovers from that, and continues on until um, until the military uh, dismisses him honorably. And then he goes off. He, he's a Navajo Indian. He goes off and goes back to the reservation, finds this pedophile, and starts waterboarding the pedophile. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the weird thing is, is I mean, you, you hear his story, and – you understand exactly how it got to that point. Exactly how it got to that point. Um, spoke to another guy at um, when he was fourteen. He enters into seminary. He's raped by a priest. 
reports it and is raped by the priest that he reports it to. And his life spirals off into uh, drug abuse, drug use, manufacturing, everything in the world. Um, So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, it seems to me because, you know, that, that was the initial thing is, you know, it seems like all these people have, uh, have bad childhoods that result in a lot of this crime, but where at some point, don't you have to take personal responsibility for, for those actions as well? Well, at some point, I would, I would not disagree with that. What's interesting about juveniles, that's, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of research into it. You know, known, known fact now is that when our brains develop, um, for men, they're not fully developed until the age of 25. Okay. And women, uh, it's about 21. So there's a, there's a term for the purging that your brain does as you grow up out of puberty during puberty. Um, but your brain actually purges gray matter. There's nerve endings that aren't used. They allocate stuff to what you're using. So there's not a comprehension or a significant lack of comprehension and culpability in understanding the long-term effects of what you do, moral values, you know, especially with environments that desensitize you to that. So whether it's a small thing where people talk about video games, violent video games, or more significantly, stuff like that you've experienced and other people experience significant trauma. Right. How do you get over that? That's like learning to tie. And I don't mean to, to be simplistic compared to, to, you know, your experience, other people's experiences, like learning to tie your shoes a certain way. Well then that's how you do it now. Sure. You know, it's like looking at, at people that, uh, children that ISIS and Al Qaeda have raised and they're out on the firearms range at nine or 10 years old, learning to shoot and we hate Americans. That is their normal. Right, right. Your life was your normal. This was your normal. So at one point when when you talk about accountability, I, I mean, is it on your shoulders for everything? Or is it, well, as I developed and grew up, and then, yes, they're coming into society and understanding, you know, what I'm doing isn't quite right. I would lean more that way than I would saying, geez, every decision you made or every action – that that you committed was all on you i have a hard time with that i really do and there are people they're they're rational choice people it's like nope no <laughs> there's good okay I, I i let's talk about your background and they're like i, I was raised with mom and dad they never had any problems we went to church on sundays we had everything we needed i got my college paid for i don't have any student loans but they gave me twenty thousand dollars down pay my house right okay good for you but you've never had the struggles that people do and you'll never understand that. Never I mean, I, um, uh, and, and for years, Robert, I, um, uh, <laughs> it's weird. I, I started speaking about all this abuse at about the same time, about two and a half years ago. And yeah. even spoke about this, this, the elevator incident. And I, and I, I had a phone call with my father. I'd always, uh, I did a podcast with my sister talking about her childhood. And at one point she says during the podcast that, she always thought someone was going to come in and save us. And my response to her was, I always knew no one was. <laughs> wow. wow. Um, That's pretty powerful. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I guess maybe to a degree, I, I hope that someone would, cause uh, my mom had left my dad and um, 
I'd always expected my dad to, I, I'd always thought I was going to go live with him. You know, everything was going to be all right. Cause my dad was a good man. He just, he, he had loved my mom so much. He put up with a lot of stuff. He, he would engage with the crime. He would, you know, she would uh, pull these mental abuse tactics, not only on us, but on him and he wouldn't stop it. I guess he had that abuse syndrome going on too. But um, I remember the day it happened. I had, uh, I got on the phone with my dad and he was, uh, I'm getting married. And I'm like, you're getting married. And he's like, yeah, I'm getting married. And uh, I remember I, I got, uh, I got on the elevator after that and a woman walks in and I just, uh, I just started hitting, just started hitting. And uh, I remember the elevator had stopped and then um, it, there was nothing sexual on that at all. It's just me hitting. Yeah. And, uh, got off and there was a guy there that I knew because the, the hospital was right out the end of the street from where we lived. There was a guy that an orderly there that I knew I played ba- basketball with his kid and he tried to grab me and I, I punched him and I took off running. Well, it didn't take long for the cops to show up at the house after that. And they bring me in and I, I just tell them everything that happened. And, uh, that was in hazard Kentucky. I didn't have a uh, juvenile facility. So I spent, I spent six months in solitary at that point. Cause they had me in the adult unit. But, uh, you know, you can't put in a, a kid with the, oh, the adults. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So uh, six months in solitary, and the, uh, they found me guilty of uh, assault in the first. And they sent me to um, for a uh, psychological evaluation. I was in uh, Louisville, Kentucky for six weeks on that. They let me go, said I needed counseling, which we never got because I was in eastern Kentucky, and we didn't have any money or anything else like that. My mom didn't think I needed it. So never, never got anything like that. And uh, like I said, it took me, it took me until I was about 47 to be able to, to talk about that in public to, to someone else. And, uh, you know, it's, I have this thing where today I say, and I, I take responsibility for that. It was my choice to do that. I really believe that. But uh, at the same time, I'm the guy that says, you know, Hey, when you're a child, I think that if you're in a, that environment, that the parents are the people who are mainly responsible for what that kid's doing. Uh, you mentioned 25, and it's, I agree with that. I mean, I've got two stepsons now. One is uh, 22, the other one's 15. I like to say they've got this intermittent Down syndrome that hits every now and then. <laughs> I've, got, I've got three boys, and I'm right there with you, bud. <laughs> They're all in their 20s, and one is one is over 25 now, and I think he's got some <laughs> – Goats, um, <laughs> you've got to shake your head, and you do. It's like, what are you doing? Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> you know, but you know, these, these two boys—they're they're great kids. They are—they're great kids. But uh, you know, me and my sister talk about it all the time. It's they—they uh, they never had to go through anything like me and her had to go through. You know, we've got this—we've got this sense of awareness. We've got this understanding of, of life that nobody else has really got unless you've gone through that kind of stuff. You no, know, you can, you can tell that story and, and at best some people are only going to be able to sympathize and never be able to empathize. Right. Because, you know, I mean, hearing that and, and having seen that in my career, it, you know, it's horrific. I mean, it's, and, and I'm talking horrific, like, you know, going to a car accident and seeing someone burn up. It's, it's that horrific to see a child, be exposed to that environment and how many police officers that I've worked with and myself, you walk out of there and go, that, that kid doesn't have a chance. Right. If there's right. no intervention now, I mean like this moment, 
that kid doesn't have a chance. How? Yeah, I, w- I was 16. I was 16 when I met my first decent person. Really? 16. Yeah, I walked in. Uh, it was after the assault and uh, Eastern Kentucky, as, you, as you're probably aware, a very small place, very close-knit. Everyone knows everything about everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we moved from um, first two years in high school were, were a complete nightmare. Uh, finally, I ended up at this this high school that was rural Kentucky that uh, they accepted me. And I went in and uh, the teacher there was an English teacher. Her name was Carol Combs. And she first sees that I'm, you know, junior in high school and I'm 6'3". So she's like, ah. then she hears the voice and she's like, have you ever done theater? And I'm like, no, but I'm interested in academic class, uh, you know, quiz bowl. And she's like, no, you want to do theater. So she talked me into that, and I I was theater and quiz bowl. And uh, I ended up, I mean, she took me completely under her wing, and I had never been around uh, healthy people before. I'd never been around that. And that was the first time I, first time I've ever seen that. And I, I mean, I took to it like a duck to water. And uh, she, at one point, she wants me to come and live with her. She she really took to me as well. I ended up getting the best actor in the state, all these awards, everything else. And, of course, as soon as I get out of high school, I go right back into the uh, the lifestyle I had been in, you know, as an adult at that point. Uh, I guess what I'm – you know, I've talked to all these people, and with the exception of one person, with the exception of one. I talked to this one guy, <laughs> this guy – it was a sniper scout. It was his son. So I'm driving to Dallas to talk to the sniper scout. And he texts me. He's like, would you like to talk to my stepson? And I'm like, what? And he's like, well, he served time for murder. And I'm like, okay. So <laughs> I go to the house and this, this guy, I call him a kid. He's in his forties, but this kid had been, he had served 10 years for murder in Texas. And I'm sitting there going, okay, Texas involuntary manslaughter. It can't be that serious for a 10 year sentence until I sit down with him. So I sit down with this guy and he's talking all in this monotone, which automatically like gets my attention. Like, okay, this is a little odd. So he's telling me the story and he gets to the point where the murder, well, the murder is one of the most prominent people in Dallas. One of the founding families of Dallas. He worked in the attorney general's office and everything else. And yeah. So uh, he's telling me about it. And it, it plays like a lifetime movie. This this girl, he starts dating her. She's the she's the daughter of this attorney. Five months in, it's the first girlfriend this guy's ever had. Five months into it, she looks at him and says, Will you murder my father? She's been telling him that to her father's molesting her, raping her, everything else. So five months into it, will you kill my dad? He says no. She breaks up with him. Comes back a month later, lays it all over him, asks him again. He says, Sure. Jeez. Yeah. So oh. I'm sitting there listening to this and this, this guy has no clue on what a murderer actually is. So he, he has an idea. So he makes a murder mixtape. Yeah. He downloads all this, what he considers a murderer will listen to, you know, all these heavy metal songs, makes yeah. a murder mixtape, starts listening to it, goes buys an eight inch knife, which automatically got my attention. Like, well, that's personal. Yeah. Buys opera gloves, black makeup, and a black cloak. That's this guy. Goes to the house. After three nights, finally goes in the house. Confronts the dad. And he tells me this. And I'm still sitting there going, okay, I'm, by this point in time, I'm thinking 10 years for everything that he's talking about. And he tells me, he's like, well, I stabbed him once. 
Then I stabbed him a couple more times, then a couple more times after that. And I'm like, so you, you stabbed him five times. And he looks at me and says, I stabbed him 33 times, and then I slit his throat. Wow. And it got me so bad. The only, the, the, only, the only response I had was, was what, because 32 wasn't enough? <laughs> Again, there's the humor to say, we got to bring a little love to this situation. Yeah. Well, he didn't think it was, yeah, he didn't think it was very funny. His face flushed red and everything else. And I'm sitting there going, well, sorry, I had to say it. But, uh, you know, he's the outlier so far in these, in these interviews that I've been doing. He's, he's the guy that, as far as I can tell, there was no remorse, none. He only gets 10 years for that. And while he is the guy that hasn't shown any remorse, I spoke to another guy that had been a violent criminal. He ends up finally being addict, uh, convicted of uh, burglary of conveyance, carjacking and kidnapping. They, they drop the kidnapping charge, but he gets 70 years, serves 28 of those. And he changes it. He turns his life around. He, he really does. Today, he runs a, a paralegal company. He's, he's, I would call the guy a good man, wow. is what I would say. Um, but he had a bad childhood, too. Now, this kid who has no remorse, he didn't have a bad childhood, as far as I can tell. I mean, he, he had, uh, that's not true. He says he was, uh, he says he had a sexual encounter when he was four. So, yeah, he did have a, ch- a bad childhood as well. I, I'm wondering, what percentage are you have you seen in your career, twenty some years, of criminals who who have that type of, of dysfunctional childhood or event compared to those who don't that engage in crime? Uh, probably more that do. Um, there's a family locally. Um, that they're going on their fourth generation of being in and out of prison. So when fourth I generation, fourth generation. So when I work, um, and, and how do we get four generations? The girls and the families are, they're having kids at 12, 13 years old. Um, the kids in the family have faced abuse, sexual abuse from within the family. Um, you know, the family is primarily on social services. There's discussions, you know, essentially dinner table discussions for lack of better term about, you know, um, going and getting diagnosed through social services with things like ADHD and things like that to get more money. The more kids you have, the more money you'll get. Um, so when I started in 1992 at the County jail, you know, you've got sons and fathers in there. And as time goes on, you got sons, fathers and grandsons. And as I'm, as I'm exiting, then you've got actually great grandchildren that were in and out. And the, the funny thing is I, when I talk to some of the people I run into them, they're, they're our age who have started their, their you know, careers since, since being a juvenile, the criminal careers, um, you know, and they, they're having the same conversations we're having. Most of them. There's some bad people out there. Don't get me wrong to the core dark, um, you know, and, and that I see not as much attributed to, like heavily having a, a, a bad childhood experience or not, that's sure. just like something very unique to the person being that dark, something intrinsic that they're just, that maybe they have significant mental health problems, but they're dark. But the ones that do, 
they really end up having the conversation we're having. And we talk to them, it's like, yeah, you know, I messed up when I was a kid and I did this. And, I, you know, everything I saw through through violence, I got mad at someone and I wouldn't just walk away or yell at them. I smash a beer bottle and stab them three times. And right. but that's how they, how they handle things. And a lot of it had to do with that's how they grew up. That was how they, you know, whether it was, you know, lashing out or getting an opportunity to express themselves, that's how they did it. What they were doing had more to do as – a repercussion of, of their upbringing, their, their behavior wasn't like I'm, I'm criminal focused. I want to be a criminal. It was, this is how I deal with things. Sure. Sure. Chaos in my life. And, and I deal with things through chaos. So, so that being said, because not everyone, I mean, it, people have bad childhoods, but not everyone results or, or resorts to that criminal lifestyle. So what do you think it is that that causes that, to happen. For example, my sister, she, she shopped us food at one point to help feed herself. Yeah. But other than that, she goes off to be a, a law abiding citizen. What, what causes that, that, that fork in the road for me going off in the criminal lifestyle and her going off to be a, a legal person? Do you think? And I would, I would say there's a couple different elements to that. You know, first would be the self-discipline and self-awareness to say, I can't continue on like that. Do you have the strength and the means to actually change how you are? Um, intervention. Is there something like the teacher that you talk about? Is there some type of intervention in your life, a capable guardian? Capable guardian doesn't mean it's mom or dad or an actual legal guardian. Is it the neighbor, the teacher, someone in your life that has changed things because they had your best interest at heart? Sure. Um, that's a term used uh, all throughout, you know, uh, the juvenile justice system is is the absence of capable guardians of the, the coach, you know, the guy who sits on on the porch across the street from me is like, don't go down there. There's <laughs> but seriously, and we go, okay, you know, or we're like, ah, the hell with you, you know, that that's important in our lives. The more we have, it's shown. So the better influences. It's kind of a, a common sense concept, you know, but more positive influences our life, the more likely we have. The, the more we are integrated to our community, the more that people care about it, the more right. we care what they think. So if I'm, I have a good household, if, if I know my neighbors, if I go to church, if I'm in a community function, I work at the local deli and I see people, you know, like you talked about knowing the orderly, the more we're invested in our community, the more we're concerned about what people think about, we want the, the structural integrity of our community, what we, we like how it is. Um, and the less attachments we have and the more isolated we are and, and we grow up with a specific behavior that might be contradictory to social norms, social order, that's, that's just our life. So being thrust into the normal world all of a sudden is like, this isn't, that's not how things work for me. Right. You, right. Well, it's me. Now you have these, you know, goals that you want to attain and you've never attained a goal through a socially acceptable means. So you're creative in, in attaining all your goals. It was like, well, I don't know why you're working for three fifty an hour. Cause that's just too hard. Cause I can go make a thousand bucks in an hour. Right. What do you say to that? What do you tell it? What do you tell a kid who's, who sold drugs and is making $1,500 a week at 16, 17 years old, say, listen, go get a job at McDonald's. This is the way to go. Yeah, you don't. You are, don't. You, are you hear yourself talking? Right. It's, yeah, you don't tell them that. You know, it's a risk-reward 
situation and, and with them understanding, you know, you're putting a lot more at jeopardy for what you're, you're getting. And I, and I'm sure anyone who's, who's committed a crime, it's, here's the risk, here's the reward. We've got that pendulum of, well, I can get this and the risk is down here. When the risk is up here, maybe we're less likely to do it. But sometimes when we keep getting that reward, we're not as concerned with the risk because we're like good at what we do as a criminal. Hey, I'm good at this. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting you said that. When I was, and I was aware of it in my criminal activity and, and with my group, you know, the cyber criminal group. Yeah. But when I got, when I got to prison, I encountered most people there, as long as they weren't in there for, you know, crimes of passion or just stupid shit. Most of the people that were in there at some point, they knew the end was going to come. You know, they, they started seeing DEA agents or they would get stopped by local law enforcement and they'd have drugs in the car and law enforcement would let them go, <laughs> you know, stuff like that, because They've got a federal indictment coming. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's called a clue in our business. Yes. 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 That guy was wicked nice. Yeah, no, no, he's not nice. The end is not. So, uh, but it, it, that, that almost that sense of fatalism of, you know, it's, it's because to me, if you, if you really, if you understand the consequences, if you know that, Hey, this ends with me behind bars for 10, 15, losing everything, friends, family is going to disown me, whatever the hell that looks like. It seems to me that if you really know the consequences, that you're going to be less likely to engage. So, you know, with, with us, I mean, the group I was in, we, we had intercepted text messages from the Secret Service. We had, we had the IP addresses. We had all this stuff going on. We saw our members being arrested, you know, disappearing, everything else. So we knew the end was coming and it was like, well, that fatalism kicks in. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And I heard that time and again in prison. You know, I knew what, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Just keep trucking. What yeah. was the thing? And uh, I mean, it's, it's, it seems to me that's common in the environment I was in. Is, did you see that in the, in the juvenile environment and the adult environment as well or not? Yeah, I think more so in the juvenile, juvenile or I'm sorry, more so in the adult environment where you can start rationalizing things mm -hmm. for juveniles i think when the risk is up here sometimes the rewards they don't care. It, i don't care <laughs> we're okay you know it, when you see stupid things like you know people jumping building to building just to get it on film and they miss and you're like like was that a thought no <laughs> and, and honestly that's that's you know there's a level of like i said the culpability that 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 lack of development that just that's the result. As people get into adulthood, they understand, especially when they've been exposed to the criminal justice system, they have a comprehension. It's like, how bad is it being in prison? How bad is it being arrested? You know, how bad is it being in solitary confinement? You look at like the movie Johnny Jeff Depp did uh, blow about George Jung. Right. You know, and that, and I, and I understand, you know, movies are, are dramatized and stuff like that, but how, how impactful in that, that final scene where he, you know, he knows George Jung knows if I get caught, it's it, it's all over the rest of it. But he's just the one. La How many one last? You know, it sounds like a gamble. This one last time, or if, if, if one time I could, you know, just hit it big, and uh, you know, there's there's a full comprehension of of what's at stake, and and that's tough. And there's some people they 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 do. I believe they do care. Um, 
they just take the risk. There's some right. people that don't care. There's, and, and you hear it, you know, in, in, a, in a prison setting, you know, when someone says, you know, I'll catch another body, I don't care. You better, you better know what they, they might be doing 25 to life and they don't, you know, that's, there are some people that the, 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 there's no risk anymore. Um, you know, they don't have anything to lose. Uh, but I remember um, it was after I escaped, but uh, I was in a County jail and I was in um, Moorhead, Kentucky. So Moorhead, Kentucky is very close to big Sandy federal penitentiary. One of the most violent federal penitentiaries in the United States. And they brought in, some of the big Sandy people, because when you catch a char, a new charge, you come out of federal prison, go into a regular jail system in order to, to be arraigned, or you go into federal yes. holding. Yes. So yep. um, they don't have a federal holding unit in, in Eastern Kentucky. So they sent them to uh, Rowan County jail. So I'm sitting there and they, they bring in these, these, you know, three black guys. They were, they were, they were young guys. I put them in, you know, mid to, mid to late twenties and very friendly you know, the etiquette's through the roof because that's one of the thing about prisoners is it's so crowded. You have to have manners and you show proper etiquette toward it. Everything's please. Yes, sir. Thank you. Everything else. So I got to talking to him and this one, this one kid, I was like, you know, um, so what happened? Well, he had stabbed and killed a guy and we got kind of close. Cause usually you don't ask why you did that. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I asked him, I, I finally got to the point. I was like, well, dude, what the hell happened? And he tells me, he's like, well, he said, you know, uh, got a 30-year sentence. He said, the only way you can get transferred out of Big Sandy is to kill somebody. And I'm sitting there going, what? And he's like, the only way you get transferred out is to kill somebody. He said, I'll do a year, year and a half in solitary, but they'll transfer me to another penitentiary. And they'll give me some extra time. He said, but I don't really care right now. Wow. So, you know, it. it, it yeah. I, I guess that's that thing of, you know, the the reward – for him was getting out of that penitentiary and whatever the consequence was, was worth that. Thank you for listening to the first part of the Robert Swinskowski episode. Part two is being released the same day as part one. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and Robert has helped you gain a new understanding of justice as he did with me. To everyone out there listening, it means a lot. Thank you. I'm grateful that you do, and I'm thankful for each and every one of you. I'd appreciate hearing from you. Questions, comments, concerns, or hey, even complaints, you can contact me direct at brett.johnson at anglerfish.com. That's brett, B-R-E-T-T dot Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P as in Paul, H-I-S-H dot com. Or just drop me a line to say hello. I like that a lot. Until next time, stay safe, stay secure, stay vigilant, and by God, do the right thing.